Hey guys, welcome back. We're listening to breaking news on MSNBC. In terms of the familial reaction of the president and the first lady as it relates to their son, they were looking at this as uh, the beginning of the end of a long a process of recovery for their son. Remember, the, the son's uh, Hunter Biden's own admission of his uh, battles with substance abuse and addiction uh, begin with the death of his brother, Bo, in 2015. Uh, some of these tax charges stem from uh, what he acknowledged again in court today was uh, an addiction that continued until 2019. And so this was the hope. And it when the public statements we've received from the White House, again, an indication of they support their son and they're proud of their son. Uh, and so they are they, they are certainly looking at this first and foremost through that lens. On the part of the White House team, though, more broadly, as they look ahead as well to a re-election campaign, uh, I think this will only exacerbate tensions that we at NBC News have been reporting about between the president's own uh, team and Hunter Biden's legal team. Abby Lowell, somebody who was brought on uh, more recently into this process, a high-profile lawyer in Washington, to be sure, but there was a sense uh, among some of the president's advisors that he was taking uh, the, the way he handled this case, both legally and in terms of public opinion and trying to shape public opinion in a direction that was not necessarily aligned with the president's political interests. And so to the degree that there is a miscommunication, a failure to understand on the part of Hunter Biden's legal team exactly what they were entering into, uh, the potential the fact that this might in their view have been the end, but in the view of the government was just an interim step, that will certainly only inflame the, the sense in the White House uh, that Hunter Biden was not necessarily getting the best uh, both legal and political advice here. And Paul Charlton, so is this potentially the start or the end of Hunter Biden's legal troubles? It's certainly a worse day for Mr. Biden than it is for the prosecution. A bad day for everyone in court today. But Mr. Biden now has a clarification, if ever there was real confusion, that this is an ongoing investigation. Whatever deal he hoped to achieve, whatever bargain he hoped to receive from these misdemeanor tax charges and... And I have one follow-up um, here, which is, would there be an option if they decide to take this chance if they realize now that they can't settle everything today, to separate it, which is something they didn't agree to before that break, separate the tax from the gun. Is there any option from what you saw from this courtroom today to settle one of them and not the other, and then also have to deal with the ongoing investigation? I suspect the opportunity to resolve the tax and gun charges are not removed. But in typical prosecution practice, deals get worse for the defendant as you move forward in time, not better. So it wouldn't be unusual for the defense attorneys to go back to the prosecutors and say, can we still achieve what we wanted to achieve in court today? And for the prosecutors to say, yes, but there'll be a greater cost to you. We'll just have to see now what happens. And I suspect there's going to be a fair amount of discussion about how it is a high-profile, highly publicized, important case like this one fell apart because of a basic misunderstanding of so important an issue as whether or not an investigation was ongoing. Mike Memoli, let's talk again. You and Phil Rucker, uh, let me bring Phil in first, actually, about the politics of this related to the possibility of a Trump indictment and how they were trying to deal with that, as well as put to bed this impeachment inquiry. Phil? 
Yeah, yeah, Andrea. That, the, the first thing to be clear about is the Justice Department uh, separates these investigations. So the Hunter Biden probe has been taking place under the leadership of the U.S. attorney uh, in Delaware, whereas the Trump investigation has been a special counsel probe led by Jack Smith. And, and you know, they have maintained uh, through Justice Department sort of norms and practices to not let the kind of politics or timing of the two influence one another. That being said, they're all playing out in, in the same political landscape and on the same calendar here. And certainly, um, you know, there, there could be some complicated politics if this Biden investigation continues and even intensifies uh, in the weeks ahead at the same time that we widely expect uh, federal charges to come uh, against President Trump, former President Trump, for his role uh, in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, that, uh, you know, he received that target letter uh, recently, and we expect that indictment any day now. And that certainly... Uh, will, you know, have an impact on the Republican presidential nomination race. And insofar as it could end up solidifying some support for Trump, as we've seen uh, with these past indictments, but it's just a reminder that the work of federal prosecutors is very much shaping the politics of the moment uh, as the presidential race gets underway. No, absolutely. I think Garrett Haig, who covers Trump as well as Capitol Hill and is familiar with what's going on with the speaker and impeachment, uh, is with us as well. Garrett, um, this is you know, an extraordinary development. It's very rare that a plea deal is rejected by a judge. Mm -hmm. But the handwriting was on the wall in that press release, which we were all asking about at the time, that this was an ongoing investigation. And we were all saying, what is the ongoing investigation about? And then, of course, the Republicans, as you know and cover them every day, seized on the fact that there are business dealings that they want to investigate, and they're trying to connect it to Joe Biden, the president. Yeah, that's right, Andrea. I think congressional Republicans and the Republican presidential candidates are going to be tripping over themselves to be talking about uh, this plea deal falling apart and continuing to highlight the Hunter Biden's issues as a way to damage Joe Biden. There was a lot of frustration in Republican circles that the initial announcement of this plea deal uh, didn't get much coverage, didn't get much uh, kind of the deep dive treatment from the national media in a way that the fact that it is now falling apart almost certainly will. I expect you'll hear a lot about this from Donald Trump on social media. And I suspect this will add fuel to that impeachment inquiry push that we're seeing on Capitol Hill from congressional Republicans. I mean, it's been interesting to watch uh, this House Republican majority approach the Hunter Biden issue because the investigative committees, the ones that you would really expect to be doing most of the digging on this, whether it be judiciary or oversight or this new weaponization subcommittee, have kind of failed to come up with anything particularly compelling as relates to Hunter Biden. But it was this these IRS whistleblower that the Ways and Means, the tax writing committee, produced a couple of weeks ago that's gotten a lot of attention, that's pushed House Republicans to the edge of opening an impeachment inquiry, uh, and an edge I think they're going to be very hard-pressed to back off from uh, once they get started. And, and development like what we're seeing now today, I think, is only going to add to that. They want to keep this story in the headlines, even though for now it's entirely about Hunter Biden, the hope springs eternal among Republican elected officials and would-be elected officials that somewhere they will find a proper nexus to Joe Biden that they can use against him in 2024. Uh, Brandon Buck, Garrett, is also with us, who, as you know well, uh, worked with two previous speakers. What do you think, Brandon, about not only this development, but how it fuels what Kevin McCarthy has been trying to do to get some you know, momentum behind uh, under pressure? from certainly the right-wing members of his caucus to start an impeachment inquiry, something that is not very popular with the Senate. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at this situation in, in two ways. I mean, the House Republicans were alleging that Hunter Biden was let off the hook on his foreign business dealings. And I think now we know that's not necessarily the case. And you would think that may uh, take some wind out of their sails. But I imagine uh, they're going to look at it quite differently. They're going to say, aha, look, Hunter Biden is still being invented, uh, investigated for these these business dealings. And as long as this is hanging out there, they're going to continue uh, banging that drum. I mean, I think ultimately, even if no further charges are brought, they'll return right to that allegation that there, there must be something fishy going on here. But, you know, the white whale for them is the idea that Hunter Biden was involved in some type of uh, illegal business deals on behalf of foreign governments, and Joe Biden was involved. I think they will now try to make the argument that possibility is still alive if there is an active investigation. So all of this just gets them all more, more spun up. The more Hunter Biden is in the news for doing potentially illegal acts, the more pressure Kevin McCarthy is going to feel. Um, all of it adds to a, a state of confusion in the House because, you know, ultimately, if you're going to bring articles of impeachment, there need to be uh, clear evidence. Uh, the wrongdoing is some proof. Okay, let's go see. Uh, Any case, yeah. um, we're gonna Let's go see. Giuliani gives up with devastating admission. Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Donald Trump's co-conspirator Rudy Giuliani just stipulated.
to liability in a defamation lawsuit brought against him by former Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, who Rudy Giuliani, along with Donald Trump, spread vicious lies about. I want to show you the stipulation that Rudy Giuliani just filed in a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., before federal judge Beryl Howell, where Rudy Giuliani stipulates to liability, basically meaning that he did it. And I want to show you the statement from Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss's lawyers. I want to show you the statement from Rudy Giuliani's lawyers, which is perplexing, giving the stipulation that I'm about to read for you, where Rudy Giuliani stipulates to liability. This is a document filed in federal court in Washington, D.C., just before. Whereas, defendant Giuliani believes that he has legal defenses to this complaint, and whereas defendant Giuliani is desirous to avoid unnecessary expenses in litigating what he believes to be unnecessary disputes now, it is hereby stipulated solely for the purposes of this litigation that defendant Giuliani, for the purposes of deciding this case on the legal issues, and recognizing that all other defendants previously identified in the complaint have resolved their claims with all plaintiffs and without admitting to the truth of the allegations, hereby does not contest the following allegations. So when you just remove a lot of the extra verbiage here, what it is saying is Rudy Giuliani hereby stipulates that... Uh, he does not contest the following allegations. What are those allegations? One, defendant Giuliani concedes solely for purposes of this litigation before this court and on appeal that defendant Giuliani made the statements of and concerning plaintiffs, which include all of the statements detailed in plaintiff's amended complaint, and he does not dispute for purposes of this litigation that the statements carry meaning that is defamatory per se. So Giuliani is admitting, admitting to all of the defamatory statements um, that were alleged to have been committed in the complaint. And he's saying, yes, I made these statements, and yes, they carry meaning that is defamatory per se. In other words, he's stipulating that the statements were and constitute defamation. Two, that defendant Giuliani, for the purposes of this litigation only, published those statements to third parties. That's another element of a defamation claim. Three, that defendant Giuliani, for the purposes of this litigation only, does not contest that to the extent the statements were statements of fact and otherwise actionable, such actionable factual statements were false. This stipulation does not affect Giuliani's ability to seek set-off, offset, or settlement credit, or his argument that his statements are constitutionally protected statements, or opinions, or any applicable statute of limitations, or that Giuliani's statements, in fact, cause plaintiffs any damages, and the amount of any alleged damages which Giuliani's statements may have caused, or any other legal defense not expressly waived by this stipulation. So what Rudy Giuliani is saying is that he does not contest uh, to the extent the statements were statements of fact and otherwise actionable, that such actionable factual statements were false. So he's admitting the statements were false. In the previous paragraph, he's admitting that the statements were defamatory per se. 
He's admitting that the statements were transmitted to third parties. Folks, those are all of the elements of a defamation claim. The only thing that he is preserving, which is curious, is he's saying, even though I made defamatory statements, he says that he will still preserve his defense, that what he said was an opinion, or that he was otherwise constitutionally permitted to make those defamatory statements, but it's kind of internally inconsistent because the Constitution does not protect defamatory statements. Yes, of course there is a First Amendment freedom of speech, but that does not protect defamations, and you can be sued for defamation. So I'm not quite sure the point of saying that, unless it makes Rudy Giuliani feel better, or that he can go back to his base and say, well, I did say I was preserving the constitutionality defense, even though that's not really a defense he could uh, avail himself to at this, at this point. And then four, that defendant Giuliani does not contest solely for the purpose of this litigation, including on any appeal in this litigation, the factual elements of liability subject to any retained affirmative defenses not expressly waived herein regarding plaintiff's claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress and other related tort claims. This stipulation does not affect Giuliani's ability to seek a set-off, offset, or settlement credit, or his argument that his statements are constitutionally protected statements, or opinions, or any applicable statute of limitations, or that Giuliani's conduct, in fact, caused plaintiff any damages and the amount of any alleged damages Giuliani's conduct may have caused, or any other legal defenses not expressly waived by the stipulation. So really what that paragraph is just adding is that in addition to defamation, uh, Rudy Giuliani is stipulating to other claims uh, that are being asserted or may be asserted by Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss as well, such as intentional infliction of emotional distress, which is a separate cause of action in addition to defamation or any other cause of action that Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss assert. And again, Giuliani says, well, he preserves affirmative defenses like that, oh, it was constitutionally protected or that it was an opinion, but that's not something that um, is going to be able to be validly uh, asserted. Estás disfrutando de mi podcast? Thanks to Babbel, I know what that means. Do you? One in five Americans have a learn a new language on their bucket list. Now, if that's you, check it off the list this summer with Babbel. Because with Babbel, you start speaking a new language in just three weeks. That's right. This summer, you can start speaking a new language with Babbel. Full semester at college with over 10... It's like OAN and OAN settled. Ultimately, if Ruby Freeman... Slash Midas. Rules and restrictions may apply. Also, he mentions there... Um, he preserves his right for kind of settlement set-offs, and all that means is that because this case was also brought against other people and other entities like OAN and OAN settled, ultimately, if Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss are seeking, uh, I'm making this number up, say $10 million, um, and they say that's all their damages are, and OAN ultimately settled for the full $10 million, well, before a jury, that may constitute a full and complete set-off. They've been completely compensated for their damages, or one of the things a jury could balance is the relative proportion of liability between, let's say, OAN and Giuliani. Is it 70-30? Is it 80-20%? Who's paying more? Who's paying less? But in a case like this, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss 
are probably claiming tens of millions of dollars uh, based on the defamatory conduct directed their way. So any set-off of offset is going to be so de minimis in a case like this um, as to have no impact at all. Just so you know, like, why was Rudy Giuliani filing the stipulation that he just wake up one day and go, I'm going to file a stipulation admitting to liability? The backstory we've covered in detail here of the Midas Touch Network, I'll just give you the brief summary of it. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was sanctioned by this federal judge, Judge Beryl Howell, for his discovery abuses. He was called out for intentionally spoliating or destroying evidence or recklessly spoliating the evidence so that critical emails and communications were not turned over. Rudy Giuliani has been separately sanctioned by Judge Beryl Howell, about $80,000 for his abuses in this case and not turning over documents and not conducting the searches. So Rudy Giuliani would either continue to be sanctioned. One of the things that the judge held out the prospect of was contempt against Rudy Giuliani or essentially making the findings that Rudy Giuliani was liable and responsible anyway. And so Rudy Giuliani wanted to basically stop the bleeding from his discovery abuses and by stipulating to the liability, he doesn't have to turn over those, the documents become irrelevant and the case just goes to damages on a civil case. So now, before a jury, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's lawyers will tell the jury, look, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's stipulated that he engaged in this conduct, that it's false and defamatory. You don't need to even decide liability anymore. You just will be deciding the damages here. How much money does Rudy Giuliani owe them for what they did? That's what Rudy Giuliani did. Um, he's still going to owe sanctions. It doesn't really alleviate the sanctions, but it stops more sanctions from discovery abuse. But ultimately, now a liability is admitted to. If you go to, let me pull up this statement right now by Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss's lawyers, um, and they accurately say what the stipulation is. Giuliani's stipulation concedes what we have always known to be true. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss honorably performed their civic duties in the 2020 presidential election in full compliance with the law and the allegations of election fraud that he and former President Trump made against them have been false since day one, said Michael Gottlieb, a partner at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher LLP, quote, while certain issues, including damages, remain to be decided by the court, our clients are pleased with this major milestone in their fight for justice and look forward to presenting what remains of this case at trial. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani's lawyers basically misrepresented uh, what they did in that stipulation, but that shouldn't be surprising. And they said, quote, Mayor Rudy Giuliani did not acknowledge, like they still call him mayor, like mayor 30 years ago, dude. Mayor Rudy Giuliani did not acknowledge that the statements were false, but did not contest it in order to move on to the portion of the case that will permit a motion to dismiss. Sorry, I had to read that again. It's like, what? He's like, Mayor Rudy Giuliani did not acknowledge that the statements were false, but did not contest it in order to move on to the portion of the case that will permit a motion to dismiss. This is a legal issue, not a factual issue. Those out to smear the mayor <laughs> are ignoring the fact that this stipulation is designed to get to the legal issues of the case. Ted Goodman, political advisor to Giuliani, I guess the lawyer couldn't even do it. Um, so they had a political advisor do it. But look, 
that's why we read the court documents together here so that you can see it for yourself and then we could just live in a fact-based evidence world this is what giuliani said you know and, and one working theory that i have as well and i've seen some other commentators you know say this as well is that rudy giuliani's cooperating with special counsel jack smith and probably has already admitted to lying about freeman and shane moss as part of his proper agreement to jack smith anyway and so if he's already admitted to jack smith that he uh, engaged in defamation that proper agreement uh, would be void if Rudy Giuliani was lying. And so I think Rudy Giuliani also had to kind of make this stipulation as well in the civil case. You know, otherwise it would undermine his proffer agreement that he was contesting liability. And then I think that would potentially result in additional charges being brought against him or a longer uh, sentencing in the event he's convicted. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Have a great day. Hit subscribe. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. Right. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Shane and Graham. Rudy should pay dearly for defaming the ladies that were just doing their work. He wants his white privilege to defame a person of color, restored without consequences, hold him accountable, civilly and criminally if possible. This is setting a precedent for all of us that work the elections. What was done to Rupert Freeman and Shea Moss was reprehensible. It's inciting terrorism. Against all these people. All of them should have been in prison two and a half years ago. Presidential candidate 2024, right? I call for additional charges of inciting terrorists against all these people who are straight to January 6th insurrection. All of them should have been in prison two and a half years ago. This is, let's see, other comments. Despicable what he did to these two ladies. Fucking destroyed their lives. 
what a total, total failure of a human being Rudy is. He has no moral compass. Life in prison for traitor Giuliani. Christopher Price, Trump for prison. Did they disbar Giuliani yet? Vote blue. Get rid of them all. I cannot, I refuse to just wait till the elections. No. They should have been gone two and a half years ago. Midas Touches Live, Mega Uncovered. Fucking majority 54, Folks. though. Folks. Chip into my campaign today. No. We made a lot of progress. We got a lot more. Yeah, like I promise not to ask you for any money for my political campaigns. Promise not, and I promise not to accept. Holy shit. And uh, I promise not to accept any PAC money. The decision that I mean, I'm going to leave. Money. I'm going to split with these people. So when all when the Freedom Caucus opposed McCarthy for speaker, Green split with them and made the decision. I'm going to get in bed, maybe literally, with Kevin yeah, McCarthy. And I don't like majority fifty-four that much. I want to take a nap. Featured contributors, Ben Marcellus, where's the top, here it is, top, top experts, indictment roadmap, here we go, here it is. This was just Welcome to a special edition of Legal AF. I'm Karen Agnifilo, and I'm joined today by Danya Perry, who's an amazing ex-prosecutor. This is called Exclusive from the Top Prosecutors Deliver Brilliant Outline for Prosecuting Trump current lawyer, close friend of mine, and we are going to talk about and break... By the way, KPYT, Peskoyaki, Tribal Radio, Tribal Radio. Break down all things indictment, all things Trump, all things that's going on. And so we're really excited to be able to explain to everybody exactly what's happening because so much is going on. It gets really confusing. So let's just talk about where we are. There are so many court cases going on involving Donald Trump that it's hard to keep track of them all. And what's really confusing for some people is that there are both criminal cases and civil cases. Now, what's the difference between a criminal case and a civil case? A criminal case is something where it's brought by the government and by a prosecutor, whether it's a state prosecutor, a local prosecutor, or the Department of Justice, if it's a federal prosecution, and somebody can be punished by the government and they can go to jail or prison. That's what criminal is, and you have a criminal record and a rap sheet. And you're gonna to say to me, but wait a minute, I don't understand. There are some cases being brought by the government, i.e. attorneys general, like Letitia James, 
who is the attorney general of the state of New York, and she has a case against Donald Trump, his sons, because remember, Ivanka Trump was taken out of that case. And that's a big case starting in October here in New York, and that's a big civil case. So that can get really confusing, right? How can the government bring a civil case? Now, a civil case is different than a criminal case because that can be brought by usually a private person or a private individual, but also sometimes the government like an attorney general. And that case is civil, meaning the only penalties can be things like monetary penalties or other sanctions uh, and restrictions on doing business in New York, but not jail or prison. And there's no criminal record associated with that case. There's another civil case, too, that just happened in Michigan, where the Michigan attorney general brought uh, charges against 16 fake electors. Now, that was a criminal case, right? So attorneys general can bring criminal cases and civil cases. So then there's other civil cases against Donald Trump, right? E. Jean Carroll is br has brought two civil cases against Donald Trump. And there's E. Jean Carroll 1 and E. Jean Carroll 2. E. Jean Carroll 2 happened already. We're waiting now for E. Jean Carroll 1 to go. So there's criminal and civil cases. And it, like I said, it gets very confusing. And then there's yet another civil case involving the Trump family uh, coming up this fall involving a scam that uh, that they um, that they perpetrated on people as well. So you know, there's so so. Let's now talk about the criminal cases, not the civil cases. But again, it's confusing because timing-wise, we all know you have Popak's whiteboard, right? That he puts up with the dates of when cases chicken go. Shit. The first case we have going is that case I just talked about in the state of New York, the Attorney General, Letitia James, and that's supposed to go in October. Then let's talk about the criminal cases that we have coming up. Uh, we have the, um, the Stormy Daniels case, right, that was brought, the case involving the hush money payments while he was president uh, of the United States. That case where Judge Alvin Hellerstein in federal court just recently removed the case yeah, or he, Trump removed the case to federal court saying, I don't want to be prosecuted by Judge Mershon and Alvin Bragg in state court. I'm the ex-president. I want to be prosecuted in federal court. So he went to federal court. He asked Judge Hellerstein whether he'll take the case federally. And Judge Hellerstein just wrote a scathing decision, basically saying to Trump, no, this is criminal. He, he, made, he used language that basically said, I find that there's evidence that he committed these offenses and it belongs in state court because this was entirely personal. This was not anything involving his presidency or, or under the color of law. Uh, of federal law or federal defenses, even though he was president when he sat in the Oval Office and wrote those checks to Michael Cohen, uh, who was his personal attorney at the time. So that case where Alvin Bragg is uh, prosecuting that is, is scheduled to go in March. And then this week, Judge Eileen Cannon, who's the federal judge overseeing the Mar-a-Lago criminal case in Fort Pierce, Florida. She just scheduled, uh, she just ruled 
that that case is going to go in May of 2024. So we got a lot going on in the Trump world. And we also know that there are two more indictments coming, right? Fonnie Willis, a state court prosecutor in the state of Georgia in Fulton County. She is expected to bring a sweeping RICO indictment uh, in the coming weeks, uh, potentially in uh, late July to August. And she's already sworn in a grand jury there. And Trump, again, has been trying to, he went, he went straight to the Georgia Supreme Court to try to get them to say, oh, you know, let's disqualify her. Let's disqualify the judge. Let's not let her use the grand jury report that she, the, of the special grand jury that, you know, just sat and took testimony and heard evidence. But so that, that he's trying to do that, but that's going full steam ahead. And we think she signaled to the world, she said it was because, you know, for security reasons, she wanted to let people know uh, when this indictment's coming. But I think it was also a signal to Jack Smith so that if Jack Smith wants to go first, uh, he can. And so Jack Smith sent out a target letter to Donald Trump uh, last week. And Danya and I are going to break down all things that are about that target letter, the Jan 6 indictment that we think is coming. And so I just wanted to frame the, the context of what we're talking about and where we are. Danya, did I forget any cases with the Trump case? Like I said, they're hard to keep track of. You did forget one on the civil side that is actually near and dear to my heart, which is a $500 million civil lawsuit that the former president brought against my client, Michael Cohen. The two have wrangled famously many times before, and they will uh, be up against each other in the district attorney's case out of Manhattan. But in this case, the former president brought this lawsuit against Mr. Cohen and then did what he tends to do, which has been his most successful and most frequently used defensive gambit. Now he's using it offensively, which is just to try and put it off. So he brought the case and then refused to provide a date for deposition. And just a few days ago, the judge in that case in the Southern District of Florida ordered him to appear for deposition within 45 days. So that's just one more item on the calendar um, that is going to happen. I will be deposing uh, the former president in a matter of <laughs> so, um, so busy docket uh, for Mr. Trump. Yes, but I think absolutely. I think you got it. There, two two civil cases in the middle of all that. But as you said, big to focus first um, on on the criminal cases, which will take priority, of course, and and you know all the juggling that the various judges are going to be uh, having to do in, in terms of actually sequencing and scheduling all of these cases. Yeah, and typically, right, the judges will talk to each other and they will decide, right? It's not up to prosecutors or defense defendants. Nobody, the judge is the one who controls when a case goes, right? It's highly discretionary. Usually it's the court's calendar that will de decide. I mean, sometimes... Typically, judges, uh, they may talk amongst themselves and try and work out, you know, as a matter of judicial politeness, uh, how these will all get sequenced. Typically, it is the first filed will be the first tried, but not always. I represented Michael Avenatti in a first filed case. This was the extortion case um, that was brought in the Southern District of New York, alleging that Mr. Avenatti had tried to extort Nike, which I thought was uh, legally very, very aggressive case. 
But at the time, I didn't know that there were several other criminal investigations, and those ended up getting scheduled just according to the various judges' calendars. So that, that is typically how it happens. But those the criminal cases will take priority over the civil ones, even the ones that have already been filed and have already been calendared, almost certainly, uh, if it, you know, depending on what works best for the various judges' schedules. So, you know, the Fani Willis Georgia case is in some ways very similar in terms of the scope and nature of what she's bringing, right? She's bringing a big sweeping RICO case, at least if it's the way we, the way people have been reporting uh, um, with the nationwide fake slates of fake electors and this, you know, big kind of uh, conspiracy to overthrow the election, et cetera. And, and that's similar to what we think Jack Smith is going to bring. What do, you, what do you think about two prosecutors bringing overlapping cases, one state and one federal? Hey, if you're a homeowner and your roof looks like this, you need to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. In this video, you'll discover how you can qualify for a special homeowners program where you can get a brand new roof with the potential to save thousands. Best part, there's no credit required. So if you're in the market, you're looking to replace or repair your roof, this might be the most important video you see all day. Hey, I'm Marilyn, and our mission is to make sure that anyone that needs a roof gets a quality roof for protecting their family during these hard times. We have helped thousands of homeowners get new roofs at the very best price through this limited time program, and now I want to show you how you can be next. The new roof program is a unique and exciting opportunity that allows homeowners to get a roof that will last a lifetime and save thousands. All you have to do is allow us to take before and after pictures of your roof and an honest review of your experience. That's it. It is super easy to apply. It'll take less than a minute. Imagine saving thousands and countless nights worrying about your roof. If you don't fix or repair your roof now, you'll regret it. All you gotta do is click on the link below and see if you can qualify. It'll take less than 30 seconds. We're gonna bring you to a new window. You can still stay and watch this video. We just want to see if you will qualify. We're just going to ask you a few questions. Remember, in as little as 30 seconds, you'll find out if your home qualifies and when we can come out and do a thorough 60-point inspection. All you got to do is click on the link below. And remember, not everyone in your neighborhood we can take for this program. So spaces are very limited. And if you're in the market to get a new roof and you want to simplify the process, just click on the link below. You'll find out in 30 seconds if you qualify. We look forward to helping you replace your roof. What if I told you there's a secret hack to get all your favorite TV channels for free, legally? Would you do it? This new groundbreaking discovery gives you access to your favorite channels and movies for free. And greedy cable companies are trying their hardest to make it illegal in the USA. The gadget provides more channels than regular cable companies with HD image. By using state-of-the-art chip technology to catch satellite TV signals, it unlocks content on all major media platforms.
all without ever having to pay for expensive contracts or monthly subscriptions. Making traditional cable providers a thing of the past and setup takes less than a minute. Just plug it in and it works. Signal quality is perfect both in urban areas and in the countryside. It's called TV Boost and was developed by an ex-cable operator employee from California who turned the TV industry upside down and saved Americans hundreds of dollars in the process. After spending years working as a technician for a local cable operator, Kevin learned that in 2010, Congress passed a new law that stops cable companies from scrambling their TV signals. No existing technology grants free access to these premium TV channels. And ever since that rule came into effect, the price of cable TV has risen by roughly 5.8% each year, which is almost three times the rate of inflation. That's when Kevin realized cable television is a complete ripoff and decided to do something about it. Blessed with years of technical experience and a desire to give back to the community, he cracked the encryption codes cable operators use to encode TV signals and developed a unique plug-and-play device that unlocks every channel in crisp HD. Investors flocked to see what he'd created once word got out, and his friends told him that he would go down in history. But when a cable provider offered him $2.5 million for the rights, Kevin declined the offer and got fired from his job through Three days later. It was then that he realized the impact his invention could have. A group of talented engineers joined him in his war against greedy cable providers. They perfected the device and readied it for mass production. It's the best and most cost-effective way to turn your regular TV into a supercharged home entertainment system. The device unlocks thousands of movies, sports, TV shows, live news, and more. All you need to do is plug it into your TV and it saves the average household up to $2,000 yearly. TV Boost has already shipped over 1 million units since its release. Cable providers are trying to sue it into oblivion. They've already banned it from stores across the U.S., forcing Kevin to sell it exclusively online. Now they're trying to take that away, too, and it looks like they'll succeed. As a parting gift, Kevin is selling TV Boost at a 50% discount before it gets banned everywhere. This has sent demand through the roof. If you want to save big on cable TV for life, click the link below to buy TV Boost from the official website. The founders of TV Boost are so confident in their product that they are offering a 30-day money-back guarantee with no questions asked. But you have to hurry up. With inflation at an all-time high, more orders are coming in fast. So click on the link in this video to get yours with a 50% discount. So interesting. I've seen it happen many times when I was at the Department of Justice. There would often be turf wars between different U.S. attorneys' offices, and that would usually get resolved from on high. You know, someone very high up at the Department of Justice. Here, you've got two different sovereigns, and I think the idea here is, uh, and I don't know that this has been articulated, but at least in my own mind. It, it makes a lot of sense because they are, it's in a way a, a belt and suspenders. If, it, in fact, Mr. Trump should win re-election, I think many of us are highly skeptical that the federal case will, in fact, if it already has proceeded, that it will, you know, go forward. There's always, there's appeals, and in this one, there, there probably will be, um, it may ping pong up and down the circuit. But in any event, it, it seems, I would say, likely, given, you know, if, if past is precedent, that there may be pardons in that case if, in fact, there are 
if it goes, and if there are convictions, obviously there are a couple ifs in the way, uh, there can be no presidential pardon at the state level. So if the DA in Fulton County moves forward and if she secures indictments and then convictions, it will be impossible for the president or his Department of Justice or his administration to really have much to do with with changing the jury's verdict there. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like on, on, the, on the one hand, it's like, let Jack Smith go, don't step on his toes, don't screw up his case. But on the other hand, it makes him pardon proof. So I lean on the side of, I think it's a good thing for that reason. I'm with you. And we don't know, right? We, we think we know exactly what the contours of each of those indictments will be based on you know witnesses who have spoken about their testimony or leaks to the press. But there were certainly some surprises, some surprises in the first Jack Smith indictment on the Mar-a-Lago document case. And I suspect there will be some, and it should there be another indictment from the special counsel's office. Explain why we don't know. What Explain grand jury secrecy, if you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just that. It is secret. There are uh, rules uh, within the code book that require secrecy from, so the grand jurors can't speak, the prosecutors can't speak, no one on that side of things can speak. Witnesses are permitted to to talk about what they were subpoenaed about and what testimony they gave. Oftentimes they, they don't for their own prudential reasons, but that's one of the ways that we've been able to get some breadcrumbs mm-hmm. about what's been going on. Um, the press has been you know, very on top of that, uh, of the grand jury proceedings, you know, waiting outside the courthouse and seeing comings and goings. And certainly there have been leaks we don't know where from, but that more often than not have have proven out. So, but but generally, I mean, it is a crime um, in at the federal level to spill grand jury secrets. And so we really don't know know everything that that eventually will come out exactly but we did hear about a target letter right that was sent to trump and what do you what can you just explain what a target letter is and when you were at the department of justice because i was a state court prosecutor for the better part of three decades i worked at the manhattan da's office and ultimately i i ended as a a cy vance's chief assistant um that was not a practice at the Manhattan DA's office to send out target letters. Can you explain what a target letter is and, and did you send them out and when do you send them out? Do you always send them out? Just could you give a little bit of a framework of that? At Fry's, you can save big today with sales and promotions on your favorite items. And you'll find it all in the Fry's app. So download the app and start saving more today. Fry's, fresh for everyone.
the Department of Justice for 11 years, and towards the end, I was Chief Trial Counsel at the Southern District of New York, and then Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division. And so I had a very good handle on the issuance of any target letters. And I cannot, sitting here today, think of any that, that we sent out. I believe Department of Justice during my tenure may have sent some out. They are actually quite rare in my experience and anecdotally. They're not, there's no provision for that in the Department of Justice manual. It, it is more common for a prosecutor to advise defense counsel what status his or her client will have. And there are three main categories. It's target, subject, or witness. Witness is someone who has no exposure and is purely a bystander, for example, is kind of the classic example of that. Subject is someone who's loosely involved in the conduct and it's almost like the prosecutors are not sure yet or are not committing yet as to whether that person will be a witness or eventually a target. And a target is, is the final one, and that's essentially a putative or a likely defendant is, the, is, is really the focus of that criminal investigation. So that's pretty typical for a defense lawyer to ask the prosecutor and for the prosecutor to let that, that lawyer know when various decisions are, are made depending on that classification. So there's no, there is certainly precedent for sending a target letter in this case where you see the special counsel's office going above and beyond, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I that where there's a case where the target is generally aware. And of course, I think everyone on the planet has generally been aware that there is a pending grand jury investigation they will go out of their way, I think, to, you know, to, to, to provide a, a target letter in, in the absence of, you know, just to avoid any doubt and to provide the opportunity for that, that target here, Mr. Trump, to either come in and meet with a grand jury and provide his defenses, which, as we understand it, he declined to do, or to make a pitch to the Department of Justice or here the special counsel's office as to why he should not be indicted or why certain of the charges don't fit or stick here. We, we have heard that that happened in the first Jack Smith production, the, the Mar-a-Lago indictment. We've heard that it happened in the DA's office case. I, I believe we've not heard that it happened yet. And so you and I could probably get into a conversation about what that means. Timing wise probably means either that he's decided he, Mr. Trump has decided not to send his lawyers in there, given his his track rate, or it's going to be a little bit longer because he's going to take advantage of that opportunity. It just hasn't happened yet. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we find out most things from Mr. Trump, right? He's the one who, you know, tells us and um, informs us of whether he was asked to surrender in a particular case or whether he got a target letter, you know, that, that we don't get that information from law enforcement or from the prosecutors, which is good. They're not supposed to do that. But, you know, I think if he wanted to meet with Jack Smith, I would assume he would have said something. And the fact that he's quiet makes me wonder whether, 
I mean, I thought, you know, they gave him until midnight, according to Trump, they gave him until midnight Thursday to decide. So I thought we could see an indictment as early as Friday and potentially this or potentially this week. But, you know, maybe he's doing things differently and he wants to do it quietly this time. But we haven't heard, at least from him, that he's looking for an opportunity to to meet with the Justice Department. We also heard from different uh, defense attorneys representing um, Rudy Giuliani and, and John Eastman in particular that uh, and that that they did not receive target letters. And you know you would expect those two, along with Mark Meadows and and Mr. Cheesebro, you would expect them all to be indicted potentially with Donald Trump on the January sixth indictment and. You know, that makes me want to ask you a question about um, do you think they're cooperating? Do you think they're going to be indicted? And, and you know, an indictment can be, it's, it's Trump, you know, when you look at Donald Trump, he's like a walking criminal enterprise, right? Like his entire existence and life in some ways is lots and lots and lots of crimes. And so Jack Smith has a lot to choose from, I think. Uh, and the question, though, is, is he going to, what's he going to do, right? Is he going to do a big, giant, sweeping indictment that encompasses all things? Or is he going to be more focused and limited and narrow with charges and defendants? Because, you know, the more defend, I mean, I know, I'm sure you, as, as I, have done many kind of multiple defendant cases. And the more defense attorneys schedules you have to wrestle, you know, into the ground, the the longer it takes to get a case to go to trial, right? I mean, so one potential thing that Jack Smith is doing is saying, you know what, I really want to get a case that is discreet and will go to trial. And so I'm going to limit it to just Donald Trump and I'm going to limit it to, you know, I know the target letter said three different charges. Talk a little bit about this whole thought process and, and where you land with, with, with all of this and whether you think people are cooperating and et cetera. Yeah, I'm thinking about it along the same lines you are. My best guess, and again, you know, we've acknowledged we're reading some tea leaves here. This My is best all guess is they are based on between us, you know, many, many decades of experience. So um, I do think that they are looking for a relatively narrow, streamlined approach, much as they did with the Mar-a-Lago indictment, and are looking to indict Mr. Trump in this first, you know, this initial indictment. And that, but we also have read about or seen signs and reports that this grand jury will remain impaneled. We know about for example, former Commissioner Bernie Carrick will be testifying in the coming weeks, and we've heard about ongoing testimony, which does imply to me that this grand jury is not going to be done with its work once it hands what we all believe will be an initial indictment in the in the coming, we'll call it days, uh, perhaps weeks, but sooner probably rather than later, and that it will keep going. And I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, with your reasoning that what the more individuals, more defendants you introduce into this charging document, the, the more complicated it all gets as a legal matter and really just as a docketing and a calendaring matter. 
And what they are going to want to do is hope that they get a no-nonsense, you know, judge who will go the line and make sure that, you know, this is tight and this gets calendared as quickly as possible and will move the case along and not have to deal with, you know, other motions or defenses or calendars. And so we'll keep it, keep it moving along. And it could be, I also agree with you, you know, certainly from some of the reporting, it is possible that some of those individuals are indeed cooperating, whether they have immunity, whether they have a non-prosecution agreement, whether they have an actual cooperation agreement. Either way, chances are, if they're not in that indictment, and again, I agree with you that they likely won't be, they, they may be in there, not as named defendants, but as 